Welcome to the Million Vegan Grandmothers podcast. And I'm Tammy Hay and Paul Pappen. And today we have the honor, the deep honor of interviewing Julia Barnes. We watched her documentary this weekend, The Sea of Life, beautiful, beautiful oceanography. And the fact that you started so young on this journey Julia, thank you. And I was just saying to Paul last night, wow, wow, wow. It was beautiful that you did everything in that documentary. You know, you interviewed, you you were the voice, you were the oceanographer, you were the producer. So thank you. Thanks. Thanks so much for uh, interviewing me today. It's great to be here. Is there anything you would like to start out by sharing what has happened since the documentary, what the documentary was like, anything you'd like to start with that is really relevant for you right now? Definitely. Um, I feel like it's one of those odd things where, you know, I started making this film literally 10 years ago. It was in 2013 and it took about three years to make. It's been out for a while now, um, but it's a film that has kind of only become more relevant with time. And, you know, all of the issues that are covered, um, things have things have not changed too much. They've changed only in the sense of um, getting worse. Like they're, you know, one of the kind of more emotional scenes in the documentary, um, for me anyway, was the mass bleaching of the Great Barrier Reef that happened towards the end of the film. And it was happening quite at the end of the filmmaking process. And you know, to see this huge area turn white and to know what that means for corals because they have expelled the symbiotic algae that they can't live without. So, um, you know, the chances of corals recovering after a bleaching event like that, some of them do, depending on how long um, the waters are too hot and, you know, the conditions, but a lot of them don't. And there have been several mass bleaching events like that on the Great Barrier Reef since the film came out and some of them worse than, than that big one that happened during the making of the film. But also something that hit a bit closer to home for me was the corals in Florida recently, um, this past summer, all of them bleached. And, um, you know, I kind of have a connection to that place because it's where I learned to dive on coral reefs. That's where I did my first ocean dives. And I know those reefs really well. And I went back several times since then. And yeah, to see that happen to them, I don't know why I wasn't expecting it because, you know, these are all the predictions are like, this is gonna get worse and this is gonna happen quickly. But it just seems like so fast that we are witnessing, um, you know, the massive destruction of the ocean on a scale that has not, been seen um, you know, on a, at a pace that has not been seen before. Um, the The rate of change here is what's so uh, incredibly unique, um, because you know the planet has been through mass extinctions before, and none of them caused by a single species or really a, a single culture. It's not the whole human species that is driving this, but this kind of messed up culture that thinks that we're superior and separate to the rest of life on earth and that everything exists for us to exploit and that we should uh, consume and extract everything that's available. And that is leading to, 
you know, a, a destruction of the world just on a, on a time scale that is orders of magnitude faster than anything that exists in, in geological history. And, you know, we call mass extinction events events, but like Charlie Barron says in the film, they usually take tens of thousands or millions of years to occur. And this is really happening in a few single human generations um, that we're seeing everything be wiped out. So it's quite horrifying. <laughs> you know, a lot needs to change. A really big um, cultural shift needs to happen or be forced to happen. Um, and yeah, that's that's where we're at right now. So I think, you know, the concepts and the issues that are explored in the film are very much, um, you know, continuing. And yeah, when I, when I started, I was 16, I was in high school, um, didn't have a degree or experience in filmmaking, but I wanted to start right away because I really felt viscerally how urgent these issues are, you know, how little time there was to do anything about it. And I just didn't want to wait. I didn't want to spend four years in university or, you know, any more time learning. I just wanted to do something immediately. And then, you know, I like very naively thought I would make a film in um, like a few months <laughs> and then ended up taking three years, which was quite a bit longer than I thought. But yeah, it's kind of odd to look back on it now and realize that, you know, the situation is only more urgent today than, than it ever has been. So Julia, you, you, um, you definitely suggested uh, in your film uh, through some of the interviews you, you had with activists that, um, that the part of the problem is not that people aren't demanding change, it's that the politicians are not responding to people's demands, do you do you do you feel that that's the case? That there is uh, really an increasing popular awareness of these problems, but the problem now is is a lack of political will. It's a good question. Um, I feel like politicians like to make it sound like they're solving problems. You know, they like to do a token gesture. You know, everyone signed on to the. Paris Agreement and oh look we're we're doing something you know they you know when people protest they like to be like okay you know people want to address climate change well look we're doing this this and this and you know to create the illusion of change when really everything is staying the same and I think we're seeing that a lot and I think you just cannot rely on I mean, I haven't seen it. You can't, I don't think you can rely on the political system that we have today to, because politicians serve corporations. They don't serve their constituencies, really. They exist to perpetuate economic growth and profit and um, at the expense of life on the planet. So I don't think that we can expect change to come from that realm. I mean, it would be great because politicians can do sweeping things, you know, and policies can do incredible things. Like if you stopped subsidizing the wrong things and started subsidizing things that are good for the planet, that's a huge driver of what's happening, right? Like fisheries are subsidized 
to the tune of billions of dollars a year to, um, you know, go out and plunder the oceans when they would not otherwise be profitable without those subsidies. So there's a lot you could do in that realm, and I don't want to discourage people from trying, um, but I also feel like it's um, maybe futile in some ways. Um, I really think that we need to move to a decentralized governance system and a much more localized um, way of dealing with issues. And But I mean, that involves a huge scale change, obviously, in like local communities and local food production and everything. Um, and of course, you know, easy for me to talk about that. It's not like I have a roadmap of <laughs> how to get there. But um, yeah, I, there's huge problems with the yeah, with governments and politicians. Yeah. Well, we we at Climate Healers, we started our, um, every three months we have a convergence. And when Salash, Dr. Salash Ra was at uh, COP26, and they would absolutely not address animal agriculture, he said it's always been the people, not the parties. And so VCOP for us, VCOP15 that we're doing is convergence of the peoples. Because as you're saying, it's not the parties that really have ever made the changes. And they've gotten away with it for a long time. To some degree, we're just not anymore. We're at the tipping point. And so it is the peoples that are going to come together and demand the change. As, as your uh, fellow oceanographer, I'm sorry, his name's slipping. Would you tell us his name here? Um, he was a lovely soul on that film. Are you talking about Rob Stewart? Um, who was the man that was speaking um that the other the other oceanographer i don't know man. Was, no, uh, man. he he was the other narrator he was he probably contributed most to the to the narrative the yeah. commentary i'm thinking you're talking about rob stewart um okay, is, is he he fairly young and had um like kind of sh shortish brown hair like wavy yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's him. Thank yeah. you. Can you tell us a little bit, Robert, is it Robert Brown? Rob Stewart. Rob Stewart. Thank yeah. you for having him on your film. It seemed like you two worked really well together. There was a lot of symbiosis and in, in the communication and the work together. And, you know, when that film was done, he said, the people are the ones that are going to demand the change. And when we bring the people together, but it, what you're saying is it's not happening quick enough. The temperatures in Florida were at an all-time high. I think I heard 101. Is that true? Mm -hmm. In the oceans, Fahrenheit. I mean, the coral was bleached at an astronomical rate this summer. So it's still happening. And when you said you don't have a roadmap of how we're going to change this, Paul and I have been writing a book about grief mapping and about road mapping our way through grief so that we don't have to process it forever because we're all in a state of grief right now to creative action, but we need more people taking that creative action. Well, that's the key, isn't it? It's like people have to start somewhere. It's like, I didn't have a roadmap for how to make a documentary either, but it was just, okay, let's learn it as we go along. And that's really what it's going to take is people start taking action, try something. If it doesn't work, try something else. Like you can't wait until you know exactly how to do it or have everything figured out. It's just 
we need to go. We needed to start yesterday, but oh well, let's start now. Yeah, but I, I really do think we have to move beyond this paradigm of the people demanding change. People have to take action themselves because they, you know, we could have the entire planet demanding change and governments not responding and corporations not responding. So, yeah, we have to take action directly, I think. And, you know, up until recently, the only um, option has seemed to be through market mechanisms, you know, boycotting. And I'm not saying that has no force, but it's still it still accepts the legitimacy of the market uh, as a, as a, you know, an engine of social change in some way. And I don't think it is a legitimate mechanism. So, yeah. Yeah. There was a really amazing analogy in your documentary that Paul and I were talking about last night. I can't remember the name of the man, but he was talking about if you want to catch a squirrel, you know, yeah. trawl, you know, the entire city, looking for that one shark or dolphin or tuna, that special bluefin tuna. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's so horrific. And part of your message was it's under the ocean. And, you know, when we, when Paul and I interviewed Captain Paul Watson, it's the same thing. It's that hidden world where we can see when an entire forest is cut down on land, but we can't see that when an entire ocean has been trawled and bleached. Yeah. That's a big part of the problem is that what happens in the ocean is usually out of sight and out of mind uh, for most of us on land who are, you know, inadvertently driving that, that those horrors to happen. Most people don't know that when they um, buy seafood that it came from something where a huge area was destroyed and so many fish were caught and then thrown away. And, you know, it's just not something that anybody thinks about. And people just don't see the ocean. They look out and they see the thin layer on the surface that stretches for, for a long way. But they rarely, so few of us actually stick our heads underwater with goggles and look around and realize that there's this whole other world full of life down there that matters. And all of these creatures have lives that are valuable to them and they have communities and connections. And there's this incredible um, balance and so many relationships in the ocean that kind of all work together to make that world function in a way that's good. And you go in there with a trawl net or lately they're thinking of mining the deep sea and it's just horror beyond imagination um what could be coming and what will that do what will all of that do to the ocean it there yeah it, it's the the a level of destruction that we are now capable of unleash, unleashing on the world um it all it all needs to be stopped and you know one of the things that we've talk about in the film is that the ocean can re recover pretty quickly and it has in some places and Cabo Pomo in Mexico where I visited for the film was a great example of that they had overfished everything and there was pretty much nothing left and they left it alone for like 10 20 well, 10 years and 450 percent increase in life in the ocean and then it was another 20 it was 
20 full years since they had stopped fishing when I went there and the place is teeming with life. Like it was one of the most uh, fantastic, beautiful places I had ever seen underwater. And that's true, but also there are limits. And once you push them, you just can't come back. Like the cod fishery really never recovered. Um, there's a lot of examples like that as well. So I just think we have to be careful. Um, you know, you can talk about the resilience of nature and we have to put some faith in that because I want to, I would, I mean, if we stopped fishing today and stopped all the destructive things happening in the ocean, I think we could see a world that is like how it was 100, 200 years ago. We could see it come back in a few decades or, or a century, maybe. Um, and, you know, that's the goal, obviously, but it's like, if they mine the deep sea, like, I don't, some things you can do and there's just no recovery from that. So like, we have to act right, right now, right now to stop things from getting worse. And in that, you know, big shout out to elder grandmother, you know, energy, Dr. Sylvia Earle, who has been looking under, under the water for so long, really grateful for her work. And I guess, you know, the other thing is to really take care of what's going on in land. And I really appreciate that you put that in your film that, you know, that, you know, interviewing uh, Keenan, uh, Keegan, uh, Keegan mm -hmm. Coons and where he was saying, we need to leave the forest alone. We need to stop animal agriculture. So that symbiotic energy of this sequest sequestering of carbon, you know, by the trees and the wetlands and the, and the grasses and, and just leaving everything alone and stopping animal agriculture, animal agriculture. So a big shout out to vegans, you know, who say, I choose to eat plants and return most of the land to the wild. And the ocean, because and the ocean. I mean, think about how many fish go into feeding farm-raised animals, it's nuts. And yeah. they're like 30% of the fish that are taken from the ocean go to that purpose. And so like, yeah, we need to take pressure off the ocean and fish in the ocean living out their lives actually sequester carbon as well. You know, we think about the forests and the grasslands as being the, the ones who do that, but actually um, fish in the ocean play a big role in the carbon cycle too. Deep sea is the largest active carbon sink on the planet. So we need to we need to be leaving the oceans alone as well. Yeah. Um, Julia, I um I've always been curious about the impact of coral bleaching on local ocean ecosystems. So I, I understand that they lose their algae, uh, but I also know that coral is uh primarily um, a shelter for a lot of animals. And uh, so so the coral, I mean, the coral remains in some sense, it's not living anymore, but why is it so devastating to the ecosystem? Is it because there's something at the very base of that ecosystem that depends on the living coral, the, the algae inside, the, or the, yeah, the algae inside the coral? Yeah, so living coral is important for a couple of reasons. One of them is it is a food source for some fish. So like parrotfish, they literally eat coral. They eat the living coral. Um, but also coral being alive provides a shelter in a different kind of way than just structure because corals also um, sting. They're relatives of anemones. 
so they're kind of like you know a fish might not want to swim that close to a fire coral um, mm -hmm. to catch another fish to eat because that is going to sting um but also when corals are alive they're constantly growing they're constantly building their skeletons and when they're not alive those skeletons start eroding so a living coral is like kind of in this constant battle with erosion right they're building their skeletons out of calcium carbonate but the ocean waves um different things that grow on them different obviously like the fish that eat them they eat parts of their skeleton as well and so without the constant growth of the coral it's going to start diminishing so once coral is not alive it starts turning to rubble and mm -hmm. So that, yeah, that's what you see. Um, the reef hangs on for a little bit, <laughs> but not, certainly not forever and not really that long period of time. Yeah. And you did say that it's possible for a coral to recover. So algae will recolonize the coral if if the conditions in, are similar. Yeah. In certain circumstances, they can pull in some algae from the surrounding water, but it really depends on how long the temperatures are too high for. Um, if it goes on too long, then they just, they can't, or if too many of the algae have gone away. Um, yeah, it's all kind of condition specific. And if bleaching happens too many times in rapid succession, then they can't really recover from that either. So this weekend, Julia, we have, because I'm, to let everybody know i'm really hoping this podcast can be put out this week because we are our our um convergence this weekend is sea of change and our keynote speaker is um captain paul watson and your energy your ability here is is such a gift to our our convergence i guess my my question to you first of all what brought you to this awareness so you you don't live near the oceans and you're this high school very aware young person what brought you here to start with and the other part of my question is how do you deal with your grief how do you hold the faith i hear you say that we know how quickly the oceans can recover but where do you put your grief these days into creative action what are you doing that helps so it's a twofold question so I really wasn't very aware as a high school student. Um, I was just going about my life like everybody else and, you know, weighing different career paths as you do when you're in high school. I was like, maybe I want to be a biologist or maybe I want to go into art. I really like painting. Um, and I, I always loved the natural world. And I, you know, went on a lot of nature walks and explored like conservation areas when I was a kid. But I didn't have any sense of like climate change was just like this vague um, idea. And I, I didn't have any sense of how bad things were. And I watched one movie uh, by Rob Stewart. So the guy you mentioned earlier um, called Revolution, which was all about the big issues facing the planet. The fact that, you know, one of the statistics he said in the film was like by 2048, we're predicted to have no coral reefs no rainforests, no fish in the ocean, and like nine or 10 billion people um, on this world that is, you know, empty of everything that sustains us. Uh, so that 
film completely changed my life. Like I watched it um, in a theater. It was one of the few environmental documentaries that I had had some time in the theater and there weren't very many other people who went and watched it that day. But um, I, I came home from that and was like, I got to do something about this. And I was just so full of energy um, and inspiration from watching that film and kind of didn't sleep for a week. And I was just like, what, what can I do? What should I do? And I ended up deciding to make a film mostly because of um, the filmmaker who had made Rob Stewart. He had written a book and I started reading that and I watched some of his talks and he was talking about how powerful it could be just to show people what was happening. His previous film, Sharkwater, had inspired a bunch of people to care about sharks and to get involved in that. And so I was like, okay, well, I'll try making a film. It can't be that hard. <laughs> and um, and that was how that happened and got started. And it was really the start of a three-year education on what's happening to the planet and everything was wrong. But it didn't stop after three years. Like I kept, uh, you know, my next film was Bright Green Lies, which looks at some of the technological things that are being proposed as solutions and how it's really just more of the same, more extraction and more destruction and how we need to change things on a, on a deeper systemic level and changing our fundamental relationship with the natural world, with other species. And um, yeah, since then, you know, your question about grief is interesting because like, of course, you know, I've cried a lot about what's happening to the planet, um, although not very much lately. And it seems an odd thing to grieve while there's still a war going on and while there's still something that you can do about it. It's like, yeah, I mean, cry about it if you're gonna, you know, if you need to feel that emotion, but then do something because things that all is not lost yet. And we really have to fight for what remains and not assume that we're gonna lose it before we actually do. So yeah, I'm constantly working on something to do with, with what's happening to the planet. And lately it's been a lot of activism around trying to prevent deep sea mining from happening because I think, you know, that could really be the thing that pushes the ocean over into complete collapse and to the point of no return. So that's something that most urgently needs to be stopped. And unfortunately, you know, we've got enough other things coming at us that we need to try and push back against and prevent. And it's like just this avalanche of new problems that keep coming. And so where do you put your energy? It's a crazy, crazy situation. But yeah, I think we all just like, if there's an issue that really hits you and you're like, I, no, I can't let that happen. I can't believe that would happen. Then, you know, take it on, make it your thing. You don't have to be the expert on it, but you'll learn enough along the way. Yeah. You, we all need to be doing that. Do you see um, deep sea mining as even more potentially damaging than uh, petroleum exploration under the sea? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Because it involves larger areas and more intrusive uh, digging and is that what yeah because it's it would disrupt from surface to seabed it would be the largest contiguous mining area 
on the planet, about as wide as uh, North America. And they would be stirring up sediment on a constant basis, which as fish swim through that, it gets into their gills and essentially suffocates them. So we're talking about, and you know, there's currents, so it's not just the area that they're mining is going to be disturbed. It's, uh, you know, potentially, I won't say the whole ocean, but the whole ocean, because um, there, it's not just one area they're targeting for mining either. It could be a whole different parts all over the planet. So yeah, um, that terrifies me more than anything. Thank you, Julia, so much for your work. And it's it's such an urgent issue. It's It's always so... And I don't feel I'm even doing enough. You know, the little the stuff I do, I feel I'm doing my best right now with with my life, right? With my life as a grandmother, with my life as a as a working person that still needs to provide. And um, but the thing with grief, and this is what Paul and I are writing about, is that you know we don't have time to go through the old you know five stages of grief, denial and anger and all that. And that's what I hear you say. And that's part of our book is that the first stage that we're talking about is the felt sense shock. Like what? Like, how come I don't know about this? Are you kidding? And then, you know, we move into a state of empathy, compassion. Like we need to understand that we need to have compassion. And then we move right into creative action. And that is what you're doing. You're saying, you know, I can't, I can cry if I need to release it that the shock and then more shock and more shock. And I have to have compassion for the process, but then I need to do something. And the doing something allows us to feel less powerless and, and immobilized because immobilized grief is very, is very depressing, you know, to just watch it all disappear for, for your generation, for my grandchildren, you know, for all the, for, for Paul's children, for the children of all species, children of all species. And we do know that fish feel pain for the longest time. Paul and I were chatting because we've really enjoyed um, your documentary and it was a lot of food for thought. And, and I'm almost a little bit embarrassed. I don't know about Rob Stewart, but you know, I was raising kids and grandkids and I'm, and I'm learning more now and learning more and more. So a big shout out to Rob for his work and revolution and, and his, his continuous work and his continuous compassion. And just so you know, he drowned in a diving accident, um, in 2017. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh-huh. See, I know nothing about this incredible soul. In 2017, it's the same year my my son died. Wow. Yeah. That must have been big grief for you, too. Yeah, huge. (laughs) Uh He was very much a, like, mentor for me in filmmaking and, you know, always there to answer my questions. And, yeah, it was very devastating to have that happen. But devastating for the world because you think, you know, the films he would have gone on to make and he was such a powerful, um, you know, person uh, in the movement to protect things. Yeah. Felt like losing a chunk of the future. So sad. This has been such an enlightening, lightening and very thought provoking, very deep feeling interview. Thank you, Julia, for your energy and your beauty and your your knowledge 
you know, this has been your life for a decade, deep dive decade. And so thank you for that. Any final words so we can just infuse just a little bit of hope into people listening today? And not hope, but maybe faith of the possibility that if we all just go vegan tomorrow, where there's no need to fish, there's no need to cut down trees, there's no need to pollute, there's no need to mine the ocean. Is that possible? Do you think that we can create a vegan world by 2026? I don't know if everyone will go vegan by 2026. Um, based on my experience of the world. But um, I do think that we can move towards a world that works for all life on the planet. And I think we have to. <laughs> um, I think that, um, yeah, knowing that, I don't know, I'm trying to come up with a good answer, but I'm having a bit of a difficult time because yeah, hope agency I don't know um I just know that we have to that, that regardless of whether we think we're going to achieve our goals or not we still have to work towards them mm -hmm. I don't think it matters very much whether we think yeah like I have so much hope I think we're definitely going to achieve this or whether it's like you know there's probably a less than one percent chance it's like um for me uh, it's doing it because it's the right thing to do, not because I'm sure that it's going to succeed or because I have very much thought that it will at all, but just you have to fight for what is right. You have to do what you think a good human would do on a world that's being destroyed. And you do it just because, you know, you want, want the other species to know that that you care, you want for, if there are future generations, if that is possible, you want for them to know that there were some people who who did care and who did do everything they could to um, to create a world where, where life would continue to be possible. Yeah, <clears throat> I appreciate that sentiment because, um, you know, it, it's easy at times to lose hope. And uh, you, you really need to um, ad adopt a perspective like that that allows you to continue battling, you know, even when hope is a little bit dim. Uh, so, yeah, thank you for expressing that. And moving beyond hope into, into creative, mm -hmm. actionable faith. I have faith that every action that I do towards the good matters. And that's all I can do is what you're saying. That's, that's yeah. I mean, I kind of, I kind of have an issue with like the whole hope despair, um, you know, mindset, because I think those are kind of two sides of the same coin. They're both expressions of powerlessness mm -hmm. and, you know, what do you, you hope for you just when you can't do anything about it? It's like, okay, I hope that this plane doesn't crash because I don't know how to fly it. But you don't, um, I don't know, you don't say I hope that I am going to walk across the room and, you know, pour myself a cup of water from the sink because I can do that, <laughs> you know? And you, so when, when the world is being destroyed, I think it's kind of problematic to speak in terms of hope because you're giving up 
your agency or responsibility for things and you're putting it onto other people or other events that you like hope will happen. But we can do something. We're all here during this time and we have some power be that, you know, whether we think it's a little or a lot, but um, yeah, I don't think we should give that up. And I think we should, um, yeah, think more in terms of, of agency. Thank you so much, Julia, for this interview. Thanks. Really appreciate your work deeply. And we look forward to watching um, Bright Green Lies. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Julia, where can people find your films, Sea of Life and Bright Green Lies? Yeah, um, so seaoflifemovie.com is the website for Sea of Life. So if you go there, you can find a link. It's available on Vimeo On Demand. That's the platform people can watch it. And brightgreenlies.com is the website for the film Bright Green Lies. And from there, you can find links to all the different platforms that it is available. So iTunes, Vimeo, Google Play, and YouTube movies. So please listen, watch, and be part of this movement. And can people reach out to support you somehow? Do you have any funding that you need for some of the work you're doing at this point? Definitely always need funding for the work that I'm doing. And, you know, having that would allow me to keep making films like this or doing important activism in terms of trying to stop the bad things that are happening to the planet. So people can donate on either of those websites, I think, Sea of Life Movie or BrightGreenLies.com. There's donate section. Thank you very much, Julia Barnes. Thanks.